Hello, I'm Marcus Rilton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. Russell Wardrop is my guest today. 22 years ago, he started a company called Kissing with Confidence, teaching professionals and businesses how to sell. In that time, he has trained over 50,000 people. His company works with 40% of the UK's largest law firms, the biggest management consultancy in the world, and he's regularly dealing in business pitches worth hundreds of millions of pounds. Today will no doubt be a lesson for me about the sharp end of business. Scots Care. For Scots in London in need of support, financial, practical or emotional help. Hi, Russell. Hello there, Marcus. You you are the first wardrobe I've ever met. It's, I've never heard of that surname. Have you ever looked into it? Well, and a little bit, uh, a couple of interesting stories. There was a, there's a wardrobe street in Paisley. It may have been named after a famous wardrobe in Paisley who was a lawyer. Actually, there's some wardrobe twins that are swimmers. But the most interesting thing is uh, my son Matthew lives in a place called Dunlop, and there are about 20 wardrobes in the small Dunlop Cemetery. It's the most oh, it's the most common name in that. It's quite spooky, and most of them are my relatives. They're farmers from Ayrshire, and as I say, if you go to the Lot Cemetery, a tiny little Scots Presbyterian cemetery, there are about twenty wardrobes in, in amongst the four or five hundred graves, which is quite an interesting an interesting little tidbit. So that's uh, farmers from Ayrshire is where the where my uh, my precedents come from, my ancestors come from. Have you ever done one of those? DNA things. My wife got me that as a birthday present a couple of years ago, which was a kind of odd birthday present, but she got one for both of us, 23 and me, and we, we tested our DNA. And she was really interesting. She she comes from a Jewish family and she had Akinana, Ak- Ak- what's it called? Akinazi, Akinazi, Akinazi mm. Jews, and a bit of Moroccan and a little bit of Arabic and some interesting European. And I was pretty boring, to be honest. I was ah. Scots, 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 and a bit of Scandinavian. I'm Scots, 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 Irish. I think. I mean, that's that's as pretty much. It. And and as far back as my as my father's side go, it is west of Scotland, Scottish. And I've got I've got farmer in my bones. Yeah, um, still got four chickens out the back garden. Um, I've got farmer in my bones. I think for centuries, for centuries, up at five o'clock in the morning, uh, like the dark, like the cold, don't like the heat. I'm not white. I'm blue. You know, that's that's you know, that's you look. At the, if you look at my colouring, I don't, I don't do tan, and that's 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 pretty much what, what's been the past number of hundred years for, for the wardrobes, I think. So were you brought up in Paisley? I'm a West of Scotland boy. I was brought up in Eagle, some wee village in the south side that we went to school in Paisley. My dad had a business in Paisley, actually, a very successful industrial waste business, and actually, what do they say? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I live in Brookfield. I built, I built, I'm an architect by profession. I built a, my last architectural project was building my own house uh, in Brookfield, which is just is that kind of near Linwood or Johnson? Aye, or place? Johnson, yeah, yeah. Linwood, Bridge of Weir. It's kind of in the middle of those three yeah. places. So I bought a garden 
and built a house 10 years ago in, in Brookfield. So I know Paisley well, and yes, I'm a, I'm a Glasgow Southsider. I have been all my life. So explain to me what your business does for other businesses, just for anyone listening, because this is what enticed me to get you on the podcast. Yeah, we, we started a business. My uh, partner and I, and now my wife, uh, Sean McClellan, uh, called Kissing with Confidence 22 years ago. We started teaching presentation skills, uh, pitching skills, essentially. Uh, just to give you an indication of that, the last bit of pitching I did, and the next bit of pitching I'm going to do is for a, 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 a construction business here in the centre of London uh, for projects worth about a couple of hundred million pounds. And if they win these projects, that'll be a billion pounds in contracts. We've helped them win in the past five years. So we now work in very big pitches. Our big programme is the Rainmaker programme. We essentially teach professionals how to sell. That's it. So 40% of our work is in the law. So we, we create Rainmakers. That's what we do. But do you, what, what is it odds? Because I follow you on social media and mm. and I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I think your humanity comes out in every single post. And what you've just told me sounds like Wall Street, sounds like Gordon Gecko, and that sounds like the antithesis of Russell Wardrop. Well, well, I I, I maybe, I'm, I think I'm kinder than I appear and uh, I don't want you to get me crying in the first five minutes, Marcus, but funnily enough, one of my colleagues um, did an interesting little exercise and she asked all of us to give three adjectives about her. Uh, so I did, I, after I gave her the three adjectives, I asked her to give three adjectives um, about me. And one of them was kind of leadership and being assertive and being the kind of, you know, the man out front, that kind of idea. I can't remember what the second one was. It might have been humour, but the third one was kind. Okay. And I was quite taken aback by that, but I do believe I'm low in empathy, but I am a kind person, um, I think. Uh, but you're absolutely right about the corporate environment. I mean, I think the thing about business is if you're going to be in consultancy of any stripe, unless you want to be a poor consultant, you have to go where the money is. So where the money is, I'm sitting here in a, a hotel in Holborn overlooking the city. Um, I'm here for a month. I'm here for a wow. month. It's great. And uh I can look over a lot of my clients and yeah, yeah, we, we go where the money is. So we work with big corporates, 40% in the big law firms. And uh, my next business, my next bit of business, funnily enough, is with the largest management consultancy in the world, who is our biggest client. But you know what you do is you seem to cut through the BS. There's, there's an honesty to your approach because when I read your posts and you're talking about, you know, big clients, you know, but you say stuff like, oh, you know, I was I was in my hotel room and I was trying to prop up my whiteboard and I used a pair of trousers and a biscuit tin. And yeah. so you're not you you're not you're not trying to create this insta life, this Facebook tastic bullshit. Well, I think that what's interesting about what you're saying about that, I mean, I would say at a very at a very surface level, what you're dem what I'm demonstrating there is humor as well as humanity. So you could call it humor or humanity. And there's no question that if you think of all the best, I nearly said leaders there, but, but my, my, my thing is oratory and public speaking. So, you know, Kissing with Confidence have trained 50,000 people in the Kissing with Confidence method, and I've trained that 25,000 of them. So I work with individuals and make them better keynote speakers, platform speakers. And I can look right into your soul when you do that. And I'm a, I, would, I would say to you, if you think of any effective leader or good speaker, let's say it's narrow it to good speaker, there isn't an effective speaker that hasn't got humour in them. So I think that humour is, what is it that Churchill said, a joke's a very serious thing. 
So if you can make people laugh, which is a, an involuntary thing, in other words, you can't tickle yourself and make yourself laugh. You can't, you know, you, people, you'll laugh because of juxtaposition because someone says something that surprises you. So what I try and do in those joy posts is two things. First of all, make people laugh or smile or be interested in them so they read them again. But second, to have a little bit of a moral to it. Yeah. yeah. So that last post you reckon there, and it's sitting behind us here, is we do work at high-end corporate. The people I was working with yesterday are senior are directors in a fairly significant business. And we've got a fantastic wonder wall, Marcus. Yeah, it's very high-tech. But I've also got a kid's flip chart behind me because I don't have my whiteboard at home. So that juxtaposition, I think, makes me a human being, a real person and not some kind of corporate entity. Scots Care. Helping to break the cycle of deprivation for Scots in London. Did you see the world of business change after COVID? Did, people, did employees want something different from their lives and their, their business world? Well, I'll come on to employees in a little minute, but I can tell you that, in fact, in this very hotel, I came down to this very hotel two and a half years ago, one Monday in March with a full diary. And by that evening, we were in lockdown. Yeah. And I tried to get home on the Tuesday morning and flights from City Airport were £750. Wow. So I got the train back north and my diary got wiped. And £100,000 came out of our diary two years ago last April. And another £500,000 came out in the next six weeks. And our business was done, Marcus. Forget, forget humans for a minute in the broader society. We had done for 20 years. Every single penny we had earned was physically standing in front of a group of people delivering training to them. And I mean every penny. And we had nothing because we weren't allowed out the house. And Zoom saved our bacon. And we are now a global business. So that's the first thing I would say that people talk about business pivoting, Marcus. Our business didn't pivot. We didn't have a business for six weeks. Yeah. Uh, a couple of lessons, I suppose, that we learned about people. We didn't have a business. And I said to our guys, as I suppose the boss, look, go and get another job, folks, because the NHS is hiring. Um, Amazon's hiring, they need delivery drivers because we're a training business. I don't know what's going to happen. And uh, nobody left, which was just fantastic. Mm. Uh, and um, come September, we thought this Zoom thing might be possible. And I said, right, we're going to go for it. We put, we put everything on the table. We put all our chips at the table, thought we'll risk it. And uh, we're now a global business because Zoom's fantastic. But here's the interesting thing about people, Marcus. Have you heard the phrase? Culture each strategy for breakfast. No, no. So that's one from Tom Peters. And I always thought it was quite trite. In other words, you know, be nice to your people and culture each strategy for breakfast. It never became true after lockdown because if you had a poor culture in your organisation, you were toast. In other words, if the people weren't all on the, on the bus. So, so nobody left our business. And I do think culture each strategy for breakfast. And I think one of the big things that's come out of lockdown is that if you're too much of a hard ass and if you drive your people too much, even if you give them lots of money, people are looking for a whole range of things now yeah. other than just the work and the money. And funnily enough, we preempted all the stuff that we're doing. We went to a four and a half day week a year ago and uh, we sorted everybody's wages out and kissing with confidence about six months ago because we saw inflation was coming coming hard at us. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody's going to leave our business, but it does mean that one thing that Sean and I are passionate about is, uh, and it sounds, I, I always think it trying when I, when I say it, is uh, 
it's doing the right thing and 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 people enjoying working with us and uh, being able to pay the bills. What gives me great pleasure is that I see people in their business, Marcus, who started off maybe three rungs down and their wages are now doubled over a few years and they're buying houses, they're buying cars, they're having kids, they're, they're getting on with their lives. And part of that is because Sharon and I started the business 20 odd years ago and get big money from corporates in London to haul back up to Scotland to pay everybody's to pay everybody's bills. That gives me a huge amount of pleasure. And of course, helping clients win big pitches and becoming better at selling. And do you think employees won't tolerate this kind of Glengarry, Glen Ross type of throw people under the bus type attitude anymore? Well, I, here's one for you that's, but we can have a debate about this if you like. I think we might have reached peak, peak that, you know, the great leave and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I mentioned to you, I'm a bit of a stoic. Yeah. Um, things can change very quickly, Marcus. Uh, and why you need to embrace stoicism, which is about acceptance and purpose and stuff like that, is that right now it's an employee's game. Right, right now it's, it's a bit, there's a recruitment crisis. But if our big recession hits and if, if, if things happen in Taiwan or out in Russia or Ukraine or something like that, you're old enough to know or you look old enough to know. And you know what a recession is, Marcus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and, I remember and, back in the last crash when I bought a house and interest rates were five percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so for me, um, I think that employers, the big change, the biggest change for me has been that homeworking has meant you've had to be able to trust the people that work in your business to be working remotely from the office. Yeah. Yes. Now the funny thing, a lot of the a lot of the businesses I've been working with for the past fifteen years. A consultant and a management consultant spends most of their time away from the office, not being looked on. Yeah. So I think the biggest change is that you have to be able to be self-actualized and a self-starter as an employee, because employers still want you to be an effective worker. But employers have to, must trust the people who work in the organization and teams must trust one another because you're not you're not eyeballing them the whole time and seeing that you know Jim's off for a half hour coffee again today or Sandra spends 15 minutes, 20 minutes extra at lunch, that kind of stuff. I've never cared about people doing nine to five. I've cared about the results at kissing with confidence. We've always had a flexible approach to work. Yeah. Flexibility, Marcus, as a business owner means you are flexible enough to work 60 hours a week. So what, what do you think, Russell, made you you? Did you have did you have jobs as a teenager? Because I, I when I was a kid, I had a paper round, and then I had a potato round. Ah. <laughs> and, then, and then I worked in B&Q in the gardening department. Where was this, was, Marcus? Where was this? This is in Clyde Bank. Right, so I'm just over the other side of the river from you. I'm probably a little bit older than you, but I... The best, every job I've had has been the best job I've had, but I was a waiter in a posh restaurant between the ages of 14 and 17. It was called the Pepper Pot of Eaglesome. Oh, yes, yeah. And I learned to do silver service and table cooking, and I can still cook because I used to, I was cooking steak Diane's and beef stroganoffs and crepes Suzette's for people when I was 15 on a wee gas burner at the end of a table, and they were paying the equivalent of 50 quid a pot for it now. And a funny, very brief, funny story. The first thing you learn to cook at the tables is crepe Suzette because it's only pancakes and orange syrup, yeah? Yeah. But you have to flambe it at the end, yeah? <laughs> it basically means, which basically means getting a glass of brandy, heating up the pan, flying the brandy in, and you get the flames, and all the people go, oh, that's fantastic. Well, I'm getting told how to do this. I've got the glass of brandy, and I'm heated up the pan, and I chuck the brandy into the pan, except I missed the pan. 
and basically it goes beyond the pan and onto the table, but of course it caught fire and it's way across. Oh my. So my first introduction to table cooking was uh, a flaming river going down the, the middle of the table. So the actual was, table. <laughs> I love that. And, and, you know, split shift, split shifts, 10 to yeah. 3, 6 to 12, five days a week, 80 quid, when I, 80 quid a week when I was 16 years old. I love having that money in my pocket. I then delivered toilet rolls and oh. janitorial supplies from my dad's business um, during the summer and uh, cash in my hand. Loved it. And also my dad was an industrial waste guy. So he's always up at five in the morning. He worked from six till six, five days a week. He went in for half a shift on a Saturday. He used to take me to my football in Paisley because it was the only way to get there in the morning. He used to be in at six. So where I've come from, Marcus, is you get up early, earlier than you think you should, and you uh, stay a bit later than you'd like. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, 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 that's where I've come from. I love working. One of the reasons I ask you about what you did as a teenager, because I read, I know, and I a lot of LinkedIn, the social media platform, I I don't engage with because I think it's yeah. nonsense. But one of the things I read is that teenagers these days are less likely to have part time work. I don't yeah. I don't know why it didn't say that, and it says as a result they can become more disengaged from their employers. And when I look at a lot of young people's profiles, you'll see I stayed eight months here, a year here, eighteen months here. You don't get the five years here, six years. Do you think we have to treat young people differently? Well, I think that, you know, I, I, I you got to be careful you don't rant. I've got to be careful I don't rant about this and I wouldn't do that. But what I think, this takes me back to the stoicism, stoicism thing. And uh, let's talk purpose. If, if you're going to throw the duvet back in the morning, <clears throat> you have to find purpose. Now, I've turned a hobby into a job. I used to do debating, a bit of after-dinner speaking. I used to train people in wee speeches for free through Junior Chamber International. I used to do it as a hobby. So yes. I've turned a hobby into a job. Yeah. And what I say to any young person, and basically everybody's younger than me, if they ask any career advice, I say, focus. Find something you're tolerably good at and that you quite like to do. You don't have to love it and you don't have to be brilliant at it. And face the wall and get brilliant at it. One of my favourite, you know, there's a guy called Stephen Bartlett does podcasts. I don't know if you've listened. Yeah, to I, I know the guy you mean. Yep. I love them. And my favourite podcast of all the ones is not all the famous people. It's a guy called Will Storr. And I'd never heard of him. I've now bought a couple of his books. And he was asked for his best piece of advice for kids. And he said, don't tell your daughter she's Beyonce. And I yeah. thought that was brilliant because your daughter's got two left feet and she can't sing a note, she's not going to be Beyonce. And even if you can dance and sing a little bit, she probably isn't either. So in other words, you know, I wanted to play for Arsenal and D United probably when he was younger, because I support these teams, but I wasn't good enough at football. So what I say to, to anyone who wants to ful have fulfillment, forget happiness, the happiness industry is the biggest con out. Because seeking happiness is like seeking the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow when you should be looking at the colours. Life is about purpose. And if you can find that focus that gets you up in the morning and gets you going in the morning, yeah, gets you up out of bed, you will then find contentment in the sacrifice you make for that purpose. And well, you know what you might get, Marcus, once or twice during the week and once or twice a day if you're lucky. You might get a little bit of joy. And that's as simple as... 186 calorie bag of Maltesers and a cup of hotel coffee. I can be happy in the biggest city in the world for 
for 69 pence. So find purpose and you will gain contentment. And once you've nailed that, your life will be jeweled with joy if you're lucky. And you'll also be able to cope with any of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that, that are flung at you. And that is life. That is life. That is the penalty we pay for, for, for being alive, Marcus, is, is suffering and death. That's what we all get. But if you can find your purpose, you will bear sacrifices and you will get contentment. And out of that will come joy. And nobody teaches anyone that these days. No, we're I agree. Taught, I think we're all taught we're entitled to happiness for some reason. Why are you entitled to happiness? What's happiness? This what is, is happiness? the purpose, purpose versus ambition thing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you know, and I think my kids, and I worry about my kids because they, they watch a lot of nonsense on YouTube. And as you know, I can be a YouTuber, I can have 60 billion subscribers. And I, yeah. you know, I have to constantly say to both of my boys, you have to have a reality check. This is, you know, and this this you know brings me to your catchphrase, find purpose gain contentment and when i first read it, i thought this isn't new if you read what plato or socrates were writing well, two thousand years ago it was about get one thing that you're good at well this is this is stoicism this is stoicism. and the other thing about stoicism and it's the, the, the darren brown's happy book is is the best exponent of it you want to have a look at darren brown's book called happy and his other books actually i'm reading stoicism and the art of happiness now and it's interesting it is it is an ancient art but the reason that the, the reason that it will come back is that it does come back when times get a bit harder because you don't think of the higher level things, the new car, the fancy restaurants or whatever it might be when you're having a hard time. So, so this isn't to decry, I mean, you know, we have never been wealthier as human beings. There's a, one of my favourite books just now I'm reading is called Superabundance and it gives you t- statistics that everything is better than it was before. And I think... What's interesting about the happiness thing is for some reason we don't seem to feel that. But that's because we're, well, for my money, we're chasing the wrong things. We're all trying to be Beyonce, to use a, a, a metaphor. So I do think that the, the, the stoicism thing has got a whole range of things to it. And what the stoics will tell you, what practicing stoics will tell you is, just so you have to physically exercise your body to lose weight or get a little bit more and more trim so you can fit into your clothes. It's kind of like exercising your mind. Scots Care. Supporting Scots away from home in London. One of my favourite aspects of it, and I've touched it a couple of times in the Joy Posts, is negative visualisation. Yeah, now that I was going to ask you about that. Use negative visualisation for inspiring positive action and do you know yes. what that re- do you know what that reminded me of russell there's a, a quote by roger mcgoff the poet he says every day i think about dying about yeah. disease starvation violence terrorism war the end of the world yeah. it helps keep my mind off things but, well well here's what I, I i love that and i'm going to look up roger mcgoff after this podcast <laughs> but here's the interesting thing a very practical reason because people think it's morbid to do negative visualization but i'll not describe it as well as say a seneca or an epictetus did but here's what they say is, or Marcus Aurelius, here's what they say is, imagine the worst things every day that could happen to your wife, your kids, your business. If, imagine everything was taken away from you. And here's the reason you do that, Marcus. The first reason you do that is because that kind of thing sometimes happens to people. And so that you, you will be prepared for it and it will not kill you when it happens. Yeah, first reason. But here's the kicker. Here's the second reason. If you imagine your children not being able to see your children again, 
or not being able to see your partner again or your business going south, it makes you appreciate it all the more that you have these things. So when you're in the moment with them, it makes you feel the joy of being able to see your grandchild or your child or your wife or making sure your business is all right. So it's not about being morbid. It's not about being depressed about it. It's about preparing for the worst, which also allows you to appreciate the things you have because everything goes in the end. None of us are immortal. But you know, Russell, it's a bit of an existential mind bomb to get your head around every day, is it not? Well, it is. And the funny thing is, we had a brief chat about this before we started the recording, Marcus. I have spent the past couple of years, you mentioned YouTube. I uh, listened to a lot of uh, a historian called Will Durant on YouTube. And it's a guy called Rocky who does the, he's a fantastic narrator. And he does everything from the Renaissance to the history of China to the history of India to all the philosophers. Now, I go to sleep with it and I generally don't hear all of it. Yeah. But what it does is it puts, it puts the modern world in proper historical context. And without being too blunt about it, pandemics and wars are nothing new. You don't even have to look very far back. And they actually happen within living memory. So in other words, why should we be surprised by any of this? And we should be, well, as a society, we should be prepared for it, but we should certainly be prepared, personally prepared for the inevitable disappointments of life. But a lot of the narrative these days is you have to be happy all the time, yes. which I think makes people miserable. Can I just tell you a little secret, Marcus? I know nobody else is listening. I'm actually the happiest person in the world. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> let me let me ask you one thing. We'll kind of run out of time, but what before we end, what I want to I want to actually ask you about failure and mm. resilience and equipping yourself with the yeah. right tools, which you've also spoken about, you know, and yeah. how important is that? Because ultimately, as you said, without failure, you can't have success. We're going to fail at least 10 times a day just to get through life. So what kind of tools do you have to equip yourself with to pick yourself up and get on with it? So that's resilience. So the, I like to teach a little bit about resilience and I put the word quit and don't quit up in a flip chart. I'll say three things about this, right? Quit and don't quit. And I put the word don't quit up first. I say, that's what resilient people do. They don't quit. Is that right? And I do is yeah. And then I put the word quit up. I said, but here's what resilient people could do. They quit. There's a big pause. I say, yeah, they quit doing the shit. The busy work, the nonsense work. So that's the first thing I'll say about resilience. But let me say about failure in terms of business, in terms of personally. I regularly put myself in front of hundreds of people for up to three hours with a flip chart and a pen. Yeah. And there's a little voice inside my head before I start, Marcus, up the back, the wee Glaswegian guy saying, you're going to bomb today, wee man. <laughs> you're, you're shite at this. He's in my head as well. Yeah, right. <laughs> So here's, let me give you a cast iron guarantee. I will bomb again. The worst I ever bombed, Marcus, was at the biggest burn supper in the world, the Bridgeton Burns Club. I was the last speaker on and I had 10 minutes and I bombed so badly, the taxi drivers in Glasgow were talking about it on the Monday morning. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm still doing it every single bloody day. So what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. First thing. So that's the personal thing about failure. Let me talk a little bit about business and failure. The financial crash and the COVID situation were existential crises for our business. Both times we were advised by really 
well-known people that we knew, business people, you could just chuck it because it's not a business to be in. It's just a discretionary business. In fact, with the COVID crisis, our chairman said, why don't you just stop and take all the money out of the bank and get everybody other jobs? Because you could just chuck it now anyway. You've got enough money. Yeah. So let me tell you what came out of the financial crisis. When everything stopped for us, that's when we started teaching selling. Yeah. Yeah. Because we thought nobody's doing presentation skills now. We would not be teaching selling without the financial crisis, Marcus. We wouldn't. It's our biggest seller. It's our biggest moneymaker now. Yeah. COVID. Everything we were doing was in the room before COVID. And now 70% of our stuff is on the Zoom. Let me tell you about our last art of storytelling course. It was done, delivered to people in India, China, mainland Europe and America, all at the same time from my front room in Brookfield. That's a massive game changer for us. So in terms of failure, it's truly the case that when change is imposed upon you, when you are stress tested, here's the great thing about human beings. We don't give up. We become innovative. We think stuff through. And I'm certainly, my background's architecture. So I'm the, I'm the big picture guy who thinks, I'm the, I'm the big right brain guy that says, mm. okay, this is how we've been doing it. How can we do it differently? How can we do it differently? So what I think about failure is, Failure is inevitable if you put yourself out there. And there's no more putting yourself out there than physically standing in front of an audience. Yeah? But more strategically in our business, the two massive failures that nearly killed our business in 20 years, the two big ones, the financial crash and COVID, in hindsight, they were the best things that ever happened to our business. Because we could still be delivering presentation skills in Scotland if it hadn't been for the financial crash and for COVID. I mean, that is a kind of brilliant irony. And when you come home at the end of the day, you've got a good support network because you're also working with family. You're working with your son, Matt, and with your wife, Sharon. Yeah. And does that give you peace? Well, I don't know if peace is the word. I certainly don't think if Sharon Matthew would say that was peace. (laughs) There are pluses and minuses working with your family. Certainly, Sharon and I are like that. We've got one another's backs, and that can be hugely... I think comforting was the word I was looking for there. The yeah. disbenefits of that is that you provide, you maybe rinse it, fence yourselves a little bit, and it means that other people don't get to penetrate the, the ideas generation might suffer a little bit because of that. But there's no question that having a solid foundation in your business is one of the reasons you last 22 years. And you don't, because lots of, especially small consultancies, there are very, very few that last um, a significant amount of time or with employees because a lot of them are kind of one-man practices so there's no question no question it's hugely benefit you gotta you gotta trust the people that you work with russell it's been great chatting to you today i really enjoyed it and i've learned a lot actually thank you you just send you send me your invoice it's been a real pleasure marcus speaking to you and i look forward to let us know when it goes up in your on your podcast and i'll let some people uh, i'll let some people listen to it brilliant speak to you again soon nice to speak to you Scots Care, supporting London Scots with financial grants, welfare advice, counselling, sheltered housing, jobs coaching and family support. <laughs>